Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. Greg Quiet, whose thinking is as clear as the diamonds he's selling, is the CEO of Quiet, a four-generation family company founded in 1907. In this interview, we talk about the history of the diamond industry, De Beers' dominating role, and the legendary advertising campaign A Diamond is Forever to stimulate demand in the 1950s, and how Muchi Prada, Nicole Kidman, and Fred Layton became pioneers in displaying beautiful vintage jewelry on the red carpet at the Oscars. Greg also gives us an insightful guide about the basic knowledge you need to make more educated choices when buying diamonds based on the four C's, carat weight, color, clarity, and cut. In 2018, Quiet and Fred Layton opened their combined flagship stores on Madison Avenue and at the Wynn Las Vegas, bringing two iconic brands under one roof. Very welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We met the first time in November, I think it was. Yes, that's right. When you had a little event at the Fred Layton store on Madison Avenue and you gave an interesting expose presentation of the diamond industry and the history of the diamond. And I thought to myself, this is... uh, this is worth an episode <laughs> just <laughs> just to talk about this. And um, so I'm very happy to have you here. The first thing that, that struck me, of course, is that you grew up in a diamond family. How was that? So it was actually a lot of fun. My great-grandfather founded our company in 1907. It's been a family-owned company ever since. So my great-grandfather worked with his son, my grandfather, uh, for many years. And then my father and uncle joined our business in... You know, just on either side of 1970, they worked with their dad, and now my brothers and I, we work with our father. Yeah. You know, it makes for interesting dinner conversation. When we were <laughs> growing up, we used to come into the city. Uh, we lived outside the city. We would drive into the city with my father on any day where he was working, but our school was off. So Columbus Day and other, other days where there were school holidays. And so we would come into the city. We would spend the day at the office, and we had a, uh, always the same game that we would Uh, get to play. We would get to crawl around on the floor. (laughs) We would get to look for diamonds that had fallen to the floor. Now, to be clear, these aren't five-carat stones. We're talking about the small little stones that either under my grandfather's desk or my father's desk, um, we would look under the desk to to search for these stones that might have dropped, and we got one dollar for every diamond that we found on the floor. (laughs) And it seemed at the time like a fantastic deal. It turns out that was... uh, we were underpaid, but it was okay. We had a great time doing it, and um, that's a sweet story. So, what was the, what was the value of those diamonds that you found? Well, they were very the, small stones. We're talking about one pointers, two pointers. Maybe they yeah. were individually worth ten dollars uh-huh. in value. It wasn't like these are major stones, but you know, as you're working with diamonds, when you're picking layouts or sorting goods, sometimes the little stones pop out. Yeah, and. If you're in the middle of some in-depth process, sometimes stopping and getting down on your hands and knees to find that one two-pointer, it's just not worth the time. And, and sometimes you don't even realize it popped out. So that's why we were under looking through, looking through the, uh, but there was the carpet. No, but none of you tried to negotiate the deal to, to increase the finder's fee here. One time, <laughs> as we opened old parcel papers, making sure they were empty, that was the other thing we got to do. We got to go through boxes of old parcel papers yeah. to make sure they were empty. One time we found a parcel that had quite a few stones in it 
and we negotiated $5 yeah. for that parcel. <laughs> uh, and then we got to go spend it at the video game store that was downstairs. Yeah. Your great-grandfather, Sam, I read somewhere that he was on Canal Street. Where on Canal Street did he start? Um... So think about the development of New York's Diamond District as mirroring the development of general business and commerce in the city. It started downtown, yeah. as much of the commerce in Manhattan did. And in those days, the early 1900s, the Diamond District of Manhattan was down on the Bowery and Canal. That was the lower east side. It was where most of the diamond dealers, particularly the Jewish population of, uh, of diamond, uh, the, the diamond community, yeah. was based. They were based down, so, so it was on Canal Street, um, right, right near Bowery. It wasn't until the early 1950s, I think it was, that my grandfather moved up to 47th Street as the general business districts of Manhattan expanded northward, so the Diamond District went with it. And 47th Street, which today is known as the Diamond District, yeah. it's very different today. In the beginning, it was the high and reputable dealer community that moved to 47th Street. And yeah. some had offices upstairs, some had um, booths in the exchanges downstairs. and. He was one of the original members of the community, my grandfather was, wow. that moved up to 47th Street when how, it was developing. So how did 47th Street start? Was it just a critical mass that some of the major players said, we're going to relocate That's here? Right. That's no. right. It was, it was a critical mass of people who said, we need to move uptown. And there was a move to create a, another district, another area where the community would be based. If you go to a lot of the worldwide diamond centers, Antwerp, Tel Aviv, there is a community, a place in the city where all of the community is based. In particular, Antwerp, there are essentially two streets, and the entire diamond industry is on these two streets and in all the buildings. And it makes for a more efficient business dealing when all of the people you would want to see are in the building with you or in the next door building. That's what was being mirrored in New York in midtown Manhattan. So your great-grandfather started out as a collector and dealer. Could you say he was a wholesaler? He was a wholesaler. So if you think of it, my great-grandfather got into the business. Well, let me even back up further. What mm -hmm. he started doing when he arrived in New York, which was a couple of years before he started the business, was selling steamship tickets to recent immigrants on installment plans. <laughs> so he was an enterprising guy. He he. He himself was one by one bringing over all of his brothers. He had a uh -huh. number of brothers, and he would send them, he would buy them the steamship tickets once he'd earned enough money, send that to them, and they would come over. And one by one, he was bringing people over. And he, there was a whole community of recent immigrants to New York that were in similar situations that had uh, relatives that they wanted to bring over. And so he would sell the steamship tickets on an installment plan. He was good at it, and he started to sell other things on an installment plan. Um, and someone who was a friend of his in the diamond business said, you know, why don't you come work with me? I will help you start out and give you some capital to work with. Yeah. And so that's what happened. He did. He got into the diamond business and turned out he really enjoyed it. He was very good at it. Yeah. But his, his career, especially in those early days, was about trading, diamond trading. He would buy and sell the goods, buy diamonds, sell diamonds for profit. Um, he would buy old jewelry, um, break out the stones to recut to a more modern um, style, yeah. um, which we look back today as now owners of the Fred Layton business and think, oh gosh, what if he hadn't cut those pieces apart or taken those, those great old vintage pieces apart? But you know, in those days, vintage jewelry wasn't necessarily thought of as, in and of itself, more valuable. What was valuable were the stones, and so I see. He, he did a lot of that. It wasn't until my grandfather joined in the early 1930s that he uh, began to make jewelry with the inventory 
yeah. that his father had. And he found he had this incredible, uh, the teardrop of Africa. So that was a little later. That was in the 1950s. Uh -huh. um, so my grandfather was involved in a lot of different elements. So he, he bought and sold loose diamonds. He, he manufactured jewelry, had a, his own workshop. He was very active in buying rough diamonds uh, directly from the mines. In those days, he and his partner would fly to Africa on a moment's notice, fly to Antwerp on a moment's notice when an important piece was available. And so one of the more important pieces of rough that he bought um, was this, it was a hundred something carat piece of rough yeah. that when it was cut yielded this 50 carat pear shape um, called the Teardrop of Africa, which was one of the most important stones that he cut in his career. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So my father and uncle joined with my grandfather uh, and it was under that generation of leadership, my father and uncle, that we began to orient our company as a consumer-facing brand. We were 90 years old as a company before we ever ran an advertisement under our own name. Uh, <laughs> up until that point, we were known very well within the jewelry world. The industry um, had come to really respect the quality of our, our business, our work, our jewelry. Um, but we were selling, for lack of a better word, generically. If you walked into a local retail store in any town in America, there might be a case of diamond jewelry. That would be our jewelry, either sold to or on consignment to that store. But they weren't selling it as Quiat. Uh, they were selling it as the store's diamond jewelry. Uh, and so when we began to brand under the Quiat name, we focused not on changing the core of what the company was or, or is still today, but putting the branded elements around it. So we stayed true to our heritage and our commitment to fine quality. Um, we stayed true to the integrity of what the business had always been. We just now were focusing on it as Quiat branded jewelry. Mm -hmm. We developed more unique proprietary designs and built on that. We began to advertise under our own name. And our customer base largely stayed the same. It was the same high-end department store, high-end independent specialty store that was carrying us before, mm -hmm. continued to, only now it would say Quiat in the showcase. I see. And as we've built the brand over the last 30 years, there's been an increasing commitment on the part of our customers to really representing us in that way. I mean, you know, in the beginning there were stores that said, well, you know, I, my store is the brand, or, um, you know, it's a long shot that, you know, you'll be able to really build this. But we said, no, we're, we're very committed to this and we're going to build this brand. But that was a big change. I mean, that was a pretty gutsy move to move downstream, I think is the term you use, right? To, yeah. to seek uh, to build a brand. I can't stress enough how radical in the thinking it was for a business at 90 to, to say, oh, let's totally rethink about what our future yeah. is going to look like. Um, totally necessary thing to do. The diamond industry was evolving, continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. My grandfather always had a saying that in business you're always in motion. You're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. And if you're not sure which one, you're probably moving backwards. <laughs> and so there was always this view that we have to be thinking ahead. What is this industry going to look like? It was clear in the 90s that a lot of the, certainly the cutting of diamonds was moving outside of America moving to India largely. Uh, and so a lot of the work we'd been doing for many years on cutting, we, we foresaw a future where it wasn't going to be as economical to cut certain sizes in America relative to what the overseas labor rates were. It became clear that the brand was the future. Now keep in mind, at the same time that this is happening, De Beers, which at that moment in time is nothing more than a mining company, it didn't have the consumer-facing brands that they had today, a major mining company, the, the, the world leader. They were always the stewards of the industry, and at that moment in time, they were really pushing 
their customers. We were direct customers of De Beers called site holders. They were pushing their customers to do more advertising and branding. They said the diamond category is losing out to other luxury goods, to travel and to other places where people are being marketed to and are spending their luxury dollars. We as an industry need to be better at marketing. And so if you put aside the retail brands like Harry Winston and Cartier and Tiffany, um, we were one of the very first what I will call a wholesale brand, brands that sold through other stores to yeah. brand in the diamond category. Uh, and, and actually De Beers held us out as an example of what they wanted more of in the industry. In fact, in the last financial annual report that De Beers published before they went private in the late 90s, they used our advertisement as the example of here is what we are in pushing the industry to do more of. This is the type of advertising. And so with De Beers' support and encouragement, that major strategic change was uh, embarked on him. To, credit to my father and my uncle for having the foresight. They also at that time knew another generation, a fourth generation of family was going to be coming into the business. Um, it was not a foregone conclusion that I would join this business. Um, my two cousins did and my brother did you know, immediately after college. But it wasn't necessarily always my path. Yeah. Um, and so I had gone to business school and I decided to join Goldman Sachs in the investment banking division. Um, I enjoyed everything about the five years I worked there. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the people I worked with. It just, as I looked ahead at my own career, I felt very strongly that I wanted to run a business. And to be fair, as my father said at the time when his friend said to him, why would your son leave Goldman Sachs? My father's answer was, well, his last name wasn't Goldman and his last name wasn't Sachs. So he joined the family. And you know that, that is part of it. As I decided I wanted to run a business, there was a natural business to join. Um, and that was almost 20 years ago. I haven't looked back yeah. even once. It's been a great ride. Beers, they were very dominant uh, in this market, uh, and they're, they're a South African firm. But uh, their market share has gone down, so other uh, markets have come in and uh, right. are competing. Can you explain that a little bit? So, a brief history of the pipeline of selling diamonds from mine to um, to the world. Yeah. In the early days of diamond discoveries, these are the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, the major players were based in Southern Africa. It was um, Cecil Rhodes, Ernest Oppenheimer. Um, they brought their business together, created De Beers, which was sometimes called the syndicate. De Beers owned some mines, mm. but also made arrangements with other mines to be the sole marketing agent for the output of those mines. So for many, many years during the uh, 20th century, De Beers either controlled the world supply, whether by direct ownership or by marketing arrangement, at its peak, more than 90% of the diamonds that got sold into the market went to London, where De Beers then had its selling program called the site holder system for how they sold them to the selected players. The, 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 at the time, it was probably 50, it grew to 100 something, and, and you know it, it hovers today. The same site holder system still exists today. It probably hovers around 75, 80. Um, approved clients, yeah. but De Beers was a classic monopoly. Mm -hmm. And so 
If you think about creating demand for diamonds in the 1950s with the Diamond is Forever campaigns, and then controlling supply when the market was, was soft, they, they did all of those things. I mean, and they were the, what was always known as the buyer of last resort, meaning they set a floor on prices. Oh. You didn't have to sell below a certain price because De Beers was always willing to buy that price. It was a controlled market, diamond, diamonds were, all the way up until the late 90s. Under pressure from the European Commission, uh, antitrust pressure, uh, also there was pressure in the US on an unrelated lawsuit um, relating to industrial diamonds. De Beers undertook a study of its own business uh, hired a consultant. That consultant said, you no longer need to play this role in the industry. And the result was De Beers took its market share down from 90 plus percent then yeah. to what is about 35 percent today. And they did that by giving up marketing arrangements. Mm -hmm. So there are many mines in northern Russia today, um, which we can come to and talk about the geopolitical implications in today's world. But oh, yeah. <laughs> for many years, Russia uh, remained a very important source, and De Beers was in control of the, the selling arrangements. They gave all of that up, um, and the company Al Rosa, which is now the major uh, Russian diamond mining concern, mm -hmm. came into existence, and they today are about 35% of the world's diamond supply. They ha gave up the arrangement with the Argyle mine, which was in Western Australia, which was owned by Rio Tinto, or, or for many years um, was a major producer. Mm -hmm. They also sold a few of the older mines in there, uh, in their portfolio, and they focused on predominantly their relationship in Botswana and Namibia, and then subsequent to that, they developed some new mines in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where De Beers' operations are today. And today, it is the, the industry is not a monopoly today. De Beers has major market power as a, as a major player, but there are other players, and as an industry, they are certainly not the only source of, of rough diamonds. They remain a, a very strong one. Um, and a desirable one because of both the quality of their goods, the fairness of their approach to pricing. But, you know, it's, it's at best, at worst, it's an oligopoly today. And I would argue that it's even a little more open than that based on the fact that many diamonds come to market in the tender format. I see. And you buy from all of these countries or do you buy exclusively from De Beers? No. So historically, we buy in a lot of different sources. Mm -hmm. um, I will say just because of what's happening geopolitically, we are no longer uh, buying from Russian sources um, because we feel important to take that stand. Um, but we buy heavily from the De Beers channel, um, but also some things that come in open market that are sourced maybe in Canada um, and some that are from some of the other African mines uh, in Botswana. There's, there are other mining companies that we, I see. we work with. So basically Australia, Russia, Africa, Canada, I saw on CNN that there was a guy in Arizona who found a diamond in some kind of well, park. So, so maybe I think it's Arkansas that you're thinking of, because yeah. the only place in America that has ever been found to have diamonds is a, is a national park in Arkansas. Yeah. Um, it is not commercial enough to actually be mined yeah. for actual production. So basically, you can go visit it, and you can do your own diamond mining. And every once in a while, a visitor finds a diamond, and it gets a lot of publicity, uh, and it's, it's a, I've never been, I can imagine it's probably a lot of fun to go, certainly I, I think I'd enjoy it, but it's the only place in America where they've ever found diamonds. I think he sold it for $10,000 and bought a, bought a truck or something. There you go. <laughs> <It's been laughs> and, and that sounds like a great trade for a visit to a park.
Yeah. I think that many people who listen to this interview would, would uh, thinking of buying a diamond. I've noticed that you, you spend a lot of time educating your uh, customers. Okay, so, so what is the basic knowledge that you, you should have if you want to sort of venture into this and, and start exploring uh, diamonds? I want to start by answering why we think education is so important. I think the best customers, the best buyers are knowledgeable buyers. The people who understand what it is uh, that we sell and why there are differences in quality and what to look out for and how to be an educated customer. I think these people do themselves a service for the process they've taken in learning and then they know how to navigate the process. It is a complicated process, buying, buying diamonds, buying diamond jewelry. It is, uh, there's a lot of unknowns and what I always, say is you can do all the research in the world, the person you sit across from is very likely going to know more than you. And so there's always going to be an element of trust in the process. People always say, why, is the why does everyone have a guy? You know, everyone's got somebody they know and that's, they always buy from their guy. I said, well, that's because what you'll realize in the process is for all the education, you're still putting your trust in somebody that they're gonna look out for your interests, deliver quality, fair value. You wanna, you wanna know that, and there's only so far your knowledge and your education will take you on that process. That's why I think education is so important, because I, I think by educating people, you build trust. You demonstrate what matters, what they should know, you teach them. I think they come away more confident in their purchase, more trusting of you, of us, and ultimately, they make better choices yeah. because of that. The, the basics of diamond education are what we call the four C's. Um, it's the way that diamonds have been taught for a very long time. Carat weight, color, clarity, and cut. And whenever people come to us, particularly for engagement rings, which is when most people enter the market for the very first time and do their very first learning, um, we take them through the whole process of understanding that. And we educate them what it, what it means, but not just the definitions, but practically how to apply that, right? Mm -hmm. You can go online and you can read, and a lot of the websites that might educate, they don't teach how to apply that out. They just say, here's what it means. And they say, well, what matters? You know, you're telling me that color is about the presence of yellowing in the diamond, but is that bad? When is it bad? Is, where on the scale should I think? And we, so we try and get really specific on how to apply that knowledge and make it practical for people. I, I'm, I enjoy what we do. so. If people like to get into it, I can sit and talk all day about it, but I try and read the, read the room a little bit. You know? yeah. if, if people's eyes start to glaze over, I say, look, I'll, I'll make sure that we're making good choices along the way. You ask any questions you have. Yeah. Um, we put a lot of information out on our website. We've done a lot of videos and, and uh, write-ups on all of these things. We want people to feel like they can do it at their own pace. right? Yeah. So some people like to do it. They like to read. Some people like to watch. Some people like to do it by themselves first. We sit down with people. We do, an, we do a... a primer on the education, and then we start looking, in an engagement context, for example, we might start looking at diamonds. And I'll show people the difference, visually. Yeah. A D color, a J color, or an H color. Here's a VS2, here's an SI1. What do you see? There's a, a real-world practicality to diamonds, and what, that, what I mean by that is everyone has a budget that, they're like, that they need to stay within, everyone has a desire of size or of a certain style, and so the whole process of buying diamond rings and jewelry generally is about balancing that. Sure, you could always pay for the very, very best in color and clarity, but that's not always the best advice to give somebody. And so we give the practical advice that says, here's where the trade-offs make sense, 
below this, it might not make sense. And you know, that's the process. That's when we sit with someone in an engagement context, we help guide them to where we might suggest the balance of color and clarity is best, where those trade-offs make the most sense and where mm-hmm. they're really getting both the best value and the best look for their money and they're spending their money in the wisest way possible. So color is the presence of yellow? Yes, so the four C's. Carat weight, we'll start with that one. Okay. It's the easiest to understand. Oh. It's the weight of the diamond on the scale. It's, generally speaking, a relative measure of size. There's some nuance to that, which we always talk about when we visit cut. Diamonds that are close together in carat weight don't necessarily look bigger than one that weighs a little less once you're in a tight range. Uh, and that has to do with the way it's cut and the size appearance of the stone. Color is about the presence of yellowing in the crystal structure of the diamond. It occurs naturally as you go down the scale, which begins at D. D is the very best grade a diamond can get for color. It goes all the way down the scale to Z. Each step, one to the next, is very subtle, so not everyone would see the difference between D and E, E and F, F and G. Once you get into the range of, um, and again, each shape is a little different in how it shows color, but once you get into the K, L, M, N range, you start to see the tints of yellow in the diamond. And once you get further than that, a diamond can look light yellow. It's almost like perfect pitch in music then. Can you see the differences? Um, I can see the differences in oh, color, can? for sure, yeah. But, but we're trained to do that. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm more sensitive to color, even if I wasn't trained, I I've, have learned about myself that I'm more sensitive to color than the average person. I just, I have an ability to see it. I have sat with customers who've looked and they immediately see differences, even one grade apart. And so there are some people who are more sensitive. I've had people who, who don't see anything different um, mm. about stones that are quite far apart. And just a note on yellow diamonds. If you've ever seen a diamond that's a bright color yellow, that's actually a scale that is after Z. It begins after Z. So there's a whole range in there where the diamond is yellowish, but not quite yet attractively yellow. So clarity, that's the third of the four Cs. Clarity is about the presence of what we refer to as inclusions in the crystal structure, basically imperfections in the crystal structure of the diamond itself. Now, 99.99% of the world's diamonds have some kind of inclusion. It's not a problem that a diamond has that. It's really a question of how pronounced it is, how notable it is, can you see it with the naked eye, how visible is it under magnification. And there's a scale that begins with the term flawless, which is a term a lot of people have heard. Uh, it goes down from there to VVS, which there's a one and a two, VS one and two, SI one and two, and then there's um, a range of I one, two, three that goes after that. Now, that's, I always tell people that and I can see them glazing over when I start to go through the scale because <laughs> no one's going to remember that. Um, the key I always advise is you want to be above the threshold where you can see anything to the naked eye. Yeah. To me, that's the starting point because you don't want to look at the stone and see something that grabs your attention, a black spot or a, a line that looks like a crack. Those things, once you see them, they can be a little hard to unsee and so you want to try to avoid that. Once you're above the threshold where you see something to the naked eye, every step up does cost more money and so there's a balance. How much do you need to, do you need flawless? My experience is that most people are not buyers of flawless. It's much more expensive mm-hmm. than a VS2 and in the what I call the real world, the practical world of a ring on someone's finger, you may never see that difference. So we have color, clarity, carrot, and then the most important one, which is the cut. Exactly, the but, most important by far. And that doesn't have any, that has some standards applied yeah. to it, but not as much as the other three, correct? That's right. So it is the hardest one to understand yeah. because there is not necessarily a single objective grade. Now let me separate for a minute. Round diamonds mm-hmm. receive from the GIA a cut grade. So a single grade based on the scale of excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor. There is a grade, and so you you have something as a buyer that you can look at 
objective third-party measure of the quality of the cut. And GAI is? GIA is the Gemological Institute of America, the single most important um, grading institution, scientific uh, body, and uh, educational institution. The GIA is a nonprofit that supports the trade through all of its work, and it is the definitive gold standard when it comes to the grading of diamonds. Outside of rounds, fancy shapes, all of the other shapes, ovals, ra radians, cushions, heart shapes, pear shape, there is no cut grade. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there's not such a thing as a finely cut stone and a poorly cut stone, quite the opposite, it's very important. Um, but there's not, for the buy from a buyer's perspective, there's not one single grade that captures it all. Now what makes a stone well cut? Cut is not shape, right? Shape is what I just mentioned, all the different outline shapes for a stone. Cut is angles and proportions, it's faceting. It's all of the things that go into making a diamond as brilliant and as beautiful as possible. And when a diamond is well cut, it's bright and brilliant and it's lively. And when a diamond is poorly cut, it's dull and dark and lifeless. And that makes all the difference in the world. So when we talk about our brand and our standards for quality of cut, we work at the highest level. We only will deal in stones that are as beautifully cut as possible. I think that's when people work with us, that's an assurance they get and it's a comfort level they get knowing that we've taken that out of the equation. There's not an opportunity to make a mistake on cut the way there might be at other places or online. We only will be showing stones that are beautifully cut. And if you think of from a buyer's perspective for a minute, listen to what I just said. I just said the most important thing has no third party objective measure. So now what do you do? You have to trust somebody. You have to look at the person who's selling it and believe that when they say it's well cut, now you might see it. You, you should, as a customer, if someone showed you a poorly cut stone and a beautifully cut stone, you would see that difference. But it's really important that the person who is showing you and describing these things is doing so accurately and that you believe in that person's guidance. I saw somewhere that you have a tiara yes. uh, standard. So explain to me then, how, how does the tiara relate to the standard set yeah. by uh, GIA? So we have developed our set of parameters uh, for qu uh, cut quality. Yeah. And for that, for us what we mean is certain angles, certain table sizes and percentages, certain depth percentages, um, certain facet lengths. We've really studied this in great depth. and. We refer to our set of standards as our tiara standards. So our round diamonds we call our tiara cuts, um, tiara being the Quiat logo. Um, so we look at the GIA and we think that the cut grading system is, is extraordinarily well done. We actually go deeper though. And we say not all excellent cut grades will earn the tiara logo, will meet our standards. There's a subset of the excellent cut grade range. All of our diamonds are excellent cut, but actually there's a certain subset of that excellent cut grade range where we believe the diamond is the brightest and also the largest looking. It shows its size in the best way possible. And so that is where we put our logo and put our standards. And that's the difference between the tiara cut and the simple cut grade from the GIA. I see. I read somewhere that you, you talk about your design team and, and you talk about different roles here. Diamond cutters, graders, jewelers, setters, and polishers, and I thought it was one and the same person who did all this, but is it different people who come in and uh, during the work process? Yeah, so there's a lot of different skills in making a piece of jewelry. You know, I, I don't think people actually appreciate the, the art form and the depth of knowledge it takes to really make a fine quality piece of jewelry. Jewelry for most people is widely available. You walk into a store, it's, you can see fine jewelry, you can go into Target and see costume jewelry or plastic jewelry. I mean, so people don't quite appreciate the steps involved with making uh, and the different skills that are involved. Yeah. Um, so diamond cutting, 
is a vastly different skill than jewelry manufacturing. Uh, there are people whose specialty is polishing. There are people who are diamond setters or, or stone setters, um, which is very different from people who would be bench jewelers, people who actually sit and handcraft the metal. And of course, the design team itself is entirely different. These are, these are people who have incredible creative approaches to jewelry, but might not even be bench jewelers themselves, right? So they might not be able to bring to life the designs they've created, so they'll work hand in hand with the people at the bench. So the star of the show then, uh, should that be the diamond cutter? I, I think it's a, an ensemble cast with many stars <laughs> because the diamond cutter for sure is a star. The, it takes a lot of skill and artistry to cut a diamond beautifully. It's science and art meet at the, at the, uh, at the cutting wheel, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of science and a lot of technology today, more than ever before, that goes into diamond cutting. But if you have an important stone, meaning a large stone or a high value stone, you're still gonna give it to the person with 30 years of experience, someone who understands the nuances and who knows more than the computer, who knows more than just angles, proportions from a, from a textbook or a, or a uh, written page, someone yeah. who understands the nuances of diamond cutting. I and see. so that person is unquestionably a star in the world of diamond manufacturing, meaning cutting rough to polished. Yeah. Just curious, how do you cut a diamond? What kind of uh, equipment is involved? Is it all digital or is it someone really actually sitting there? So the world is changing. But if I took you back to the beginning of diamond cutting, a lot of the ideas from early diamond cutting are still with us today. To cut a diamond, you actually use the dust of the diamonds itself. So you have a spinning wheel that is coated with diamond dust and you take the rough stone and you press it surface by surface against that spinning wheel. And each time you press it, it flattens out, almost like sanding with sandpaper, but it flattens the surface. Yeah. And so the process of diamond cutting is essentially sitting at that spinning wheel, pressing the stone, turning the stone, pressing it again, until you've formed the shape that you're after, whether it's a round or any other fancy shape, and placing the facets. And then there's a process for how the facets get placed. First you do a, a simple, simpler eight facets over eight facets, and then somebody else will come in and place what's called, uh, do the brilliant deering, which is placing the smaller facets on the stone to give it even more life. Today, there's a lot more technology. Mm -hmm. um, so, which starts from the planning, you will do, essentially do like a three-dimensional x-ray of a rough diamond, which will then use um, scenario management within the software to look at all of the different outcomes um, you give it inputs on how you might value different outcomes and it will actually show you, here's the ways that you can cut this diamond. Wow. Here's what we expect for size of the polished stone, color and clarity of the polished stone. And based on your inputs on valuation, the most valuable combination is this one. And then you look and you say, okay, saleability, marketability of these, these pieces, is that the best option? Is that a more complicated? I mean, there's still human intervention that will determine what path you choose. And then there's a lot of automation that's occurring now mm -hmm. in the process of diamond cutting. To be fair, most of it is still done by people sitting at wheels. Yeah. Um, 
particularly small stones. Um, 90% of the world's diamonds are cut and polished in India. Um, and that has to do a lot with labor rates and then the historical development of the industry. There's mm -hmm. a lot of expertise there. Um, there's been a lot of efforts to open diamond cutting factories in southern Africa in the countries that have the mines to keep um, that the, the economic benefits to keep them local. Yeah. So you've seen a lot of people open factories in Botswana and Namibia um, and also South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, Does India produce diamonds also? There are no active diamond mines in India and haven't been for 300 years. Earliest diamonds in the world were from the Golconda region of India, which is famous for the quality of the diamonds it produced. But with that said, no mines have, no mines have been active in India uh, in many, many years. I, I've heard on and off about exploration that occurs in India. There are no commercially producing mines today in India. So mm. all of the diamonds that are being cut there are being imported from a, a producer nation. So the, the Indian community, the, the, the diamond community in India has grown dramatically uh, in fact, Indian firms are some of the, the very largest in the diamond community. Um, that really started many years ago with the low cost of labor in India and skills around diamond cutting and jewelry manufacturing developed. And so today you've got uh, a knowledgeable workforce, people who've been doing it for a very long time and some very powerful firms, both financially um, and also just with market reach. India is a major player in the world of diamonds. So how do you balance uh, the vintage part of your business, Fred Layton, who has this uh, image of being very dominant in that part, to the more, I'd say, contemporary or modern? How does that work in your world? So we keep our two brands distinct from one another. Our Quiat brand is focused on diamonds, diamond jewelry, uh, timeless, classic timeless design. Fred Layton, which is historically known for vintage jewelry, um, being a, a place that you can buy some of the most important historical pieces, we also develop jewelry of our own there, and we call the collection Signed Fred Layton. And we develop pieces that are inspired by the world of vintage. So our own designs, but done in a way that speaks to certain periods or takes techniques um, that we appreciate, historic techniques. Yeah. Um, and so, we keep the two brands looking distinct and positioned differently. You know, we're developing all the time for both brands. I would say product development and design, it's one of my most favorite areas about our business. I enjoy very much being involved in that. I, I will not claim to be our, uh, our design talent, but I do get <laughs> deeply involved in the design team. I, we have yeah. some wonderful people who have designed for us over the years and who are working with us today. How do they collect the ideas? Do they talk to customers or is it more creative brainstorming? So the best designers have an ability to do both of those things at the same time. Uh -huh. It's, there needs to be a, a well of creativity. You, yeah. you need to be able to tap into a, a place that, of creative brainstorming, um, ideas. How do you take new ideas and, and bring them to life? But you also have to be in touch with consumers. There's a very definitive style uh, that's driving modern buying, uh, purchase habits, and so you've got to be in touch with that. And also you want to be in touch with new development of techniques. A lot of what happens in jewelry that's exciting is um, using techniques that are newly developed, and that could be new ways to set stones, it could be new ways to work with materials like titanium or enamel or ceramic. There are a lot of materials that historically were not used in jewelry that have been over the last 10, 20 years. And so staying in touch with those developments, the best designers put that all together. Yeah. They, they have a good sense of what people want to buy. They have a whole host of creative ideas. 
Do you work with in collaboration with other established uh, designers? So we keep it in-house and we promote our brand as the name. So the people who are part behind that, we don't necessarily put their names out front and center. Tiffany has done collaborations. You see a lot of people doing collaborations. It's an interesting way to, to build a collection, find new audiences, market and promote. Um, you know, for a, for a brand the scale of Tiffany, I can understand why it makes sense because um, it gives them ways to do distinct things that might be a little different from the mothership. But you know, for us, I think we've thought about it over time. We probably will in the future do it, but to date we haven't really done those types of collaborations. I understand that Fred Layton, uh, their tradition was to, to uh, work on the red carpet with yes. celebrities. Mr. Layton, who was the original founder of the business, really understood the power of the red carpet for getting out the message that he believed deeply in. And that message was that vintage jewelry, it's as fashionable in today's world as it was when it was originally created. For a lot of years, people looked at vintage jewelry as old jewelry, as jewelry that was from a different period and it wasn't interesting to people. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the last 30 or 40 years that people started to appreciate that pieces from a different era were interesting, collectible, and really wearable today. Yeah. And so the red carpet was the best way that Mr. Layton knew to show the world how fashionable vintage jewelry could be. There were people out there uh, who, who got it, but it was in, co in collaboration with some of those people that the early moments on the red carpet for Fred Layton happened. One of the early moments that we talk about is um, one year that Nicole Kidman was attending the Oscars, and Mucha Prada, who was a longtime friend of Fred Layton, had been in the store and had seen an opal necklace. And when she was doing the dress for Miss Kidman to wear to the Oscars that year, she called and said, I want her to wear the opal necklace with it. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect combination. And so she did. And there was a lot of excitement and power in that moment to show this antique piece of jewelry. Yeah. Look how relevant it is that one of the world's biggest stars chose to wear it at one of her most important fashion moments. And from there it was clear that Fred Layton on the red carpet was all about creating magical moments using vintage jewelry. What happened to Fred Layton though? Because you bought it at uh, an auction yes. sale. Mr. Layton uh, founded the business in the, in the 1970s and operated all the way until um, about 2007. Yeah. And in 2007 he sold the company. He sold the company to another gentleman um, who was a prominent dealer uh, of vintage jewelry in, in the industry. Um, unfortunately that individual ran into some difficulty financially. Um, he had borrowed some money, ended up in um, bankruptcy with um, the, the lender pursuing um, him for that. So it was a difficult time for the Fred Layton business, but not because the business itself wasn't still as every bit as exciting as it was um, all those years. Mm -hmm. And so it was from that process, from that um, bankruptcy process, that we had the great fortune to be able to buy the Fred Layton business. And we bought it in 2009, and we've owned it ever since. Yeah. And I think we remain true to the, the core of what the business was always about, which is finding the greatest vintage jewelry and giving it a place uh, where it can have another life, where it can find a new, a new home for the next, uh, its next chapter. Yeah, is that a process where you give a bid and there are other bidders <clears throat> on the company in the situation that you yeah. were at the time? Yeah. So you could have lost it to someone else? 
Yeah, so the bankruptcy process in the US um, does involve putting in a bid, and then ultimately there is a process where others can come in yeah. and, uh, and bid. We had done a lot of work. We were very eager to be the buyers. Ultimately, we were successful, but yeah. there, was, there was a moment where we were hoping but weren't sure what was going to happen. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was exciting. It was a very exciting time. I mean, obviously, if you think about the time period, 2009 was, in a lot of ways, a very scary time. It was yes. post-financial crisis, but certainly the world had not recovered. We were very excited about the opportunity. We felt it was a really uh, advantageous opportunity for us. Um, very excited to, to bring another brand into our, into our world. And I mean, you're, a lot of time you're the perfect buyer for it. I felt so. I mean, I have to say, at the time I said, look, this is hard to do. It's hard to buy this company because you need to understand the following all at once. You need to understand um, the bankruptcy process. You need to have some financial understanding of that. You need to understand how the world of finance would look at this. And you know, I'd come from the world of finance, so I felt like I, I understood that. You need to understand what it means to own a brand and what you can do with that brand. Well, that's what we've been doing at Quiat for, for that, those many years. We were very excited about that prospect. A lot of people who looked at the business didn't really understand that, right? They came at it just from an inventory perspective, which is the third thing you needed to do. It was a company that had extraordinary inventory and so much of the value was actually in that inventory. So you needed to look at all of these extraordinary pieces, this diverse group of pieces that ranged over 250 years, and you needed to understand how to value that. And we had that expertise as well. And so I felt like I was really in a position where we were the unique buyer for this, for this business. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, we were right. So you have uh, two stores, uh, one in New York and one in Las Vegas. Yes, um, in New York and then in Las Vegas, we're at the Wynn Hotel. Oh, yeah. We think both are great locations that place us right in the heart of where our um, customer is buying jewelry. And then you're working with a network of uh, collaborators all over the world. That's right. The, the historical and bigger part of our business is working with our retail store partners. So we have a network of independent specialty store customers, meaning the, the stores that carry the high-end watches and jewelry in every local town. We work with the high-end department stores um, all across America. The community of, of dealers and sellers all around the world. These people that we work with that position our brand as the high-end diamond jewelry brand in their store, um, you know, this is an important part of our business as well. How do you keep them all happy? <laughs> I think if you sell, they're happy. <laughs> and we're lucky that we've been able to um, be meaningful parts of our customers' business. Um, you know, look, we're in a good category. Diamond jewelry is um, popular, desirable. We sell a range of things from everyday classics like diamond stud earrings and lime bracelets to everyday fashion designs to larger one-of-a-kind pieces. I think that our customers have a lot of customers for what we sell. And so yeah. we're important to our customers and our customers are important to us. So you mentioned before uh, the slogan, a diamond is forever, which was conceived in the late 40s, correct? That's right. Uh, so what is the next slogan? Uh, do you think about that? You know, when you drive to work every day, you know, what, so, what could we have here? Yeah. <laughs> so it's been around for a long time. It's been time. around for a long time, which shows you the real power of it. Yeah. Um, whenever any publication does a roundup of the best advertising slogans of the last hundred years, this one always is at or near the top of the list, a diamond yeah. is forever, because it really changed the category. I mean, it really repositioned the way people understood diamonds and 
thought about them as a purchase. And I, even as we talk today, I can see the power of it. I mean, you, you know, you, you understand in just that one artfully written line what makes a diamond special, how it links to love and how it links to life and how it links to value. Our industry has searched, I'm sure, at every level. <laughs> and we've certainly thought about uh, taglines and slogans and marketing yeah. messages. I, no one, no one in the entire industry has come up with anything yeah. that's even close. And yeah. it's still in use today. Yeah. People will still use it. It is still owned by De Beers. They've used it at the industry level because for many years De Beers still did industry advertising um, on behalf of everyone. Right? No, no specific brand. Just a diamond is forever on behalf of the category. And they use it sometimes for their De Beers branded stores. That's incredible. Well, the only thing that came close is diamonds are a girl's best friend, I guess. Uh, that is, that is the closest. Yes, <laughs> that is the closest. Um, and certainly between that slogan and Marilyn Monroe, that lives, yeah. that yeah. lives forever. There are some contemporary versions of that song. They're sampling it. Megan Thee Stallion did that. And, yeah. Uh, Normani and stuff that's like that. That's right. That's right. Well, it's so many people would know this song. Maybe they never even heard this song, but they, they think they've heard the song. They know that phrase, diamonds are a girl's best friend. So what are you working with now? What fills your days? What's next for this uh, corporation? Any mergers on the horizon? Um, <laughs> Any? Look, the fun part of working in a family business is that every day is different. Any day you could come in and you could do one of a hundred different things. And sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't even know. Um, some days I work with clients and, and I'm in the store. Some days I am focused on what we're buying. Some days I'm at trade shows and some days I'm at um, thinking about financial things. You know, I, I think that we have a lot of exciting things ahead. I think this company's best days are still ahead of it. We're always open to transformative. Like I said, you're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. We are laser focused on making sure we're always moving ahead, thinking about not just what's happening today, but where we're going. Um, we spend a lot of time on how augmented reality and virtual reality will impact the selling process. We spend a lot of time on thinking about whether we would like to add more brands um, to our company. Um, and I, I do think that's something over time we will do. Hmm. Um, we think a lot about what kind of inventory we want to be purchasing yeah. day to day. We, we, uh, We've bought some very important rough recently and we're manufacturing that. Um, and then some days we'll buy really important pieces of estate jewelry. Some of the most exciting things we do are on the buying side. Well, Greg, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I think it's a fascinating topic and, yeah. and uh, I'm so grateful that, that uh, we did this because I got the opportunity to, to, to learn a little bit well, about it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate yeah. you having me on the um, show. And, no, absolutely. Um, and your thinking is as clear as the diamonds that you produce. So, so thank you. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's just um, a pleasure to, to um, have this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank pleasure you. to speak with you as well. Thank you. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art design and architecture, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2022.